Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to deal with the rising cost of inflation to pay off your debt or your mortgage, pretty much anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Well, with Yahoo Finance, you can get access to the news, data, and tools that you need in order to help you reach that financial freedom. And when it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. And now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses. Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. Spring is in the air at Littleton Coin Company, and we want to help you brighten your collection. Visit us at littletoncoin.com all month long to enjoy 15% off your purchase. With a wide selection of coins, paper money, supplies, and more, Littleton Coin Company has something for every collector's taste. Use promo code SPRING at littletoncoin.com for 15% off your purchase all month long. Restrictions apply. Littleton Coin Company. Serving collectors since 1945. The Peter Schiff Show. Well, today is the first day of June, and it's also Jobs Friday. But before we get to the always highly anticipated uh, non-farm payroll number, uh, I want to talk about some of the economic data that came out yesterday on Thursday. I think the most significant release was the personal income and spending numbers for the month of April. And in fact, the spending numbers were so strong that it prompted the Atlanta Fed to adjust its estimate for Q2 GDP all the way up to 4.6%. And I think they notched it up another uh, tenth today to 4.7%. So this is the highest estimate they've had. Since you know they had that 5.4 estimate for the first quarter, of course we now know that we got 2.2. So they were uh, much too optimistic on Q1, and my gut is they're equally overly optimistic on Q2. But let's talk about this personal income and spending data. And the surprise was not on the income, but on the spending. And in fact, the revisions when they went back to March. The original report was for a three-tenths of a percent gain in income and a four-tenths of a percent gain in spending. They ended up revising the income number down. So income only rose by two-tenths, but they revised spending up. Spending went up by five-tenths. So income, you know, went up two-tenths. Spending went up five-tenths. What does that mean? That means savings went down quite a bit because where did the money come from to finance the extra spending, it didn't come from income, so it came from uh, savings or it came from debt, right? Either people depleted their existing savings or they went deeper into debt by putting their purchases on a credit card. But then for the month of April, we got 0.3% increase in income, which is what was anticipated. But spending, instead of rising by 0.4, rose by 06 so consumers are spending money twice as fast as they're earning it for the month of April, 
six-tenths up on spending, three-tenths up on earnings. So again, what does this tell you? People are tapping into already uh, pretty uh, shallow savings pools, or they are running up more credit card debt to buy stuff. Now, everybody likes this. In the short run, yeah, this is great because consumer spending uh, feeds into GDP, and that makes the number better, and it can make everybody feel good about this false narrative about the U.S. economy. Right? Everybody believes that the world is slowing down, Europe is slowing down, and emerging markets are in trouble, but America is a sea of prosperity, right? that our economy is immune, that we're just going to keep on growing, even though we've got a rising cost of living, even though we've got uh, increasing interest rates, massive debt right? on all levels, all these big picture problems that we've got, but everybody assumes that there's nothing to worry about. In fact, you know, you look at CNBC, I was watching them today after the jobs numbers, which I will get to, and they are so excited to a man. I mean, they're just giddy. They're like little schoolgirls about the stock market. Everything is perfect. Nothing can go wrong. Keep on buying. I mean, this is Goldilocks. I mean, you know, stocks are going to go up. The economy is going to keep going. In fact, they had Larry Kudlow that came on. You know, now he's uh, Trump's economic advisor, but he's back you know, at his old stomping ground on CNBC. And of course, they love to have him there. And he's talking about the U.S. economy. And he said, we're in a new era of prosperity. A new era of prosperity. How? What has changed since Obama was president? Because right? he wouldn't have described the economy under Obama as a new era of prosperity. But all of a sudden, he's part of the Trump administration, and this is a new era of prosperity. You know, the last new era of prosperity was in the Bush administration. And there, um, uh, Kudlow wasn't part of the team. He was just, you know, a cheerleader for the team from CNBC. But he was saying the same stuff back then. I used to get into arguments with him. Everything was great. Right? We cut taxes. It was great. You know? All the guys, Art Laffer, remember him? Oh, we have, nothing's going to go wrong because we have tax cuts, right? The economy was great. All these naysayers are wrong. So Kudlow was very excited about the economy in 2004 and 5 and 6 and 7. And even as you started to see some of the signs of a problem, he was very dismissive. The naysayers are wrong. The economy is great. It's the greatest story never told, right? It's this booming Goldilocks economy, right? Well, it's, it's worse now. I mean, the economy is in worse shape now than it was before the financial crisis. No question about it. All of the fundamentals are much worse. And therefore, the collapse is going to be much worse. But you got them talking about this new era of prosperity. What have we done? We've cut taxes. Yes, that's fun, right? If you got a tax cut, you've got more money. But where did that new money come from? It was borrowed, just like these personal income and spending monies. Where did the consumer get more money to spend? They borrowed it. There's a big difference between earning money and borrowing money, right? When you buy things with the money you earned, well, that's fine because you can afford it. When you buy things with money you didn't earn, when you just borrow money to buy stuff, that is a problem. And when you borrow money to fund tax cuts, that is a problem. If we had cut government spending, no problem. We can afford the tax cuts. Because we reduce the cost of government. Fine. You have smaller government, and then you can have lower taxes. That's one of the reasons to want small government. So you can have low taxes. 
But we didn't do that. We cut taxes and we made government bigger. It wasn't that we just left the size of government alone. That would have been bad enough, but we made it worse. We actually got more government, right? We increased the cost of government to make the people who get government checks happy. And then we cut taxes to make the people that write checks to the government happy. Now, if you do all those things and you make everybody happy by going deeper into debt, you can have some phony prosperity for a period of time. Not a very long period of time, but enough for people to get all excited about it. I mean, that's what happened uh, in the run-up to the 2008 financial crisis. A lot of people got excited about a phony prosperity. But the problem with phony prosperity is that it's phony. And when it's phony, it doesn't last. Right? Just like a drug high. It only lasts until the drugs wear off. And the drugs always wear off. Right? You can't stay high forever. I mean, you can try, but it's not going to work. We're going to try. We're going to do QE4. We're going to cut rates again, but it's going to end in overdose. It's going to end in a collapse of the dollar. But the point is, right now, you've got all these Republicans talking about how great everything is because we're living on borrowed money. We're living in a gigantic bubble, and we know bubbles are going to pop. And what's going to happen when it does, right? All of it's going to be blamed on the Republicans, on Trump, on the tax cuts. Right? It's not going to be blamed on the extra government spending because the Democrats aren't going to blame the problems on the fact that there's more welfare spending. But they will blame it on the tax cuts. And they'll blame it on deregulation. That didn't even happen, but they'll blame it on that because that's one of the Democrats' talking points. And they will position themselves just like the the you know the, the new populist left-wing party uh, in Italy, uh, they're going to be the new savior, and they're going to be taking America hard to the left uh, with socialism to try to drain the swamp and make America great again by making America socialist. That that is where we're headed because you know, we we are uh, pretending that this economy is great when it's built on a mountain of debt and interest rates are rising. Now you know. We got a reprieve, right? The problems in Italy caused a rush into dollars again, a rush into treasuries, and interest rates dropped. Now, we had a big jump back up in interest rates today, and I think that we're going back up and making new highs on interest rates, which, of course, is going to be problematic for every aspect of the economy that is in debt, including you know the consumers who are taking on more debt to continue to spend because they're not earning that money. But is anybody even talking about the plunging savings rate? No, no one's talking about it. They want to talk about consumers spending money. But what about the fact that they had to borrow it? And again, they keep wanting to spin this uh, by saying that, well, the fact that consumers are confident enough to borrow money just shows how good the economy is. That may sound right, but that is counterintuitive. Borrowing money is not a sign of health or prosperity. I've gone over that on this podcast before. What is a sign of a strong economy is when you don't have to borrow money. What's the sign of a strong economy is when you can pay back the money that you already borrowed. Remember, your savings, that's your rainy day fund, right? And when the sun is shining, and if the sun really is shining right now, like everybody says, then people should be putting away money for a rainy day. Unless you think it's never going to rain again, which, of course, a lot of people seem to think that, that it's going to be permanent sunshine in this new era of permanent prosperity, right? which we've heard many times before, usually you know, 
late in, a, in an economic expansion when people all of a sudden assume that the expansion is never going to end, and then all of a sudden it does, right, because all expansions come to an end, especially when they're fueled by cheap money, right, because they always sow the seeds of their own destruction. But if Americans are spending their rainy day fund now while the sun is still shining, what are they going to have to fall back on when it rains? Right, when somebody loses their job and now they don't have any savings at all, right? This is a huge problem that nobody wants to talk about it. Everybody wants to talk about how great it is that consumers are spending money, but not that they're having to deplete their already shallow savings pool to do it or go deeper into debt. But let's go forward and let's talk about the big number that came out today, the employment number. And we had had two months in a row of relatively soft numbers. So today, they were looking for 190,000 jobs created. And we ended up with 223,000 jobs. So we beat the number, right? Finally, the first month and three months that we were over 200,000 jobs, although I think the three-month average is in the 170 range. So, you know, but this is the first month that was over 200,000 jobs. And Donald Trump was real excited about it. In fact, he couldn't even wait for the release. He tweeted about the jobs numbers before they were released. He sent out a tweet, uh, excited to see the jobs numbers today. And of course, as soon as that tweet came out, I think a lot of the traders started to trade on it because obviously Trump gets the numbers before they come out. And if he's going to call attention to the jobs numbers and talk about how excited he is to see them, it's obviously because he knows they're going to be good, right? If the number was going to be weak, he would ignore it. So, um, and he couldn't even wait for the number. That's how excited he was to tweet about it. But of course, the irony of it was if the number was exactly the same, and he was still a candidate, and this was happening under Obama, he would be extremely critical of the jobs report, particularly the unemployment rate, which dropped to 3.8%. I think that ties the record low going back, you know, how many years? I don't know, 15, 20 years. Uh, 3.8 from 3.9. The labor force participation rate, that actually fell. Remember, they were getting excited when it got back up to 62.8, which is still low. Well, now it's back down to 62.7%. Uh, the average hourly earnings, which last month were only up by 0.1, uh, this month they came in at the higher end of estimates at 0.3. I think they were looking for maybe anywhere between 0.1 and 0.3, so maybe slightly better because the average of that was 0.2. We got 0.3, big deal. It's all rounding errors anyway. Uh, I don't see that as significant uh, growth in average hourly earnings. I mean, if you average the last couple of months, you get 0.2. That's really no big deal, but the markets are still excited with it because they're buying anything. And so this was supposedly a strong jobs report because we had 223,000 new jobs and wages were up by 0.3 and the markets liked it, right? The market had a favorable reaction. The Dow was up a little over 200 points on the day, not quite enough to recoup the 250 points it lost yesterday, but I think we were still positive on the week by you know, like 100 points or so. So U.S. stocks uh, managed to gain. Of course, those gains, you know, get highly concentrated in just a handful of stocks. It's a lot of these information, technology-type names uh, that have been going up. Um, you know, you're, and, 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 you know, a lot of stocks, a lot of stocks in the U.S. are in bear markets. Even though the, the U.S. major market is not, there are a lot of sectors that have really been getting beaten up. And I mentioned in my last podcast, the financials, to me, are really now starting uh, to look weak. In fact, yesterday I talked about Deutsche Bank on my Wednesday podcast. And then Thursday, yesterday, basically the U.S. government released that it had been putting Deutsche Bank on some kind of 
you know, Credit Watch a while ago. They never mentioned it. They were getting worried about it. And the stock was down, I think, at the lows, maybe 7 or 8% on the day. We got to the lowest level ever. Remember I mentioned before that we hadn't quite taken out the low from a couple of years ago. Well, we took it out uh, in, in a big way. And in fact, we closed the week below that old low. But we got all the way down to $10.57. All-time record low stock. Never been that cheap. Uh, remember, we're talking about a $100 stock pre-2008 financial crisis. 2008 financial crisis low in the 20s. And here it is trading, finishing out the week at $11.04. Now, you know, I don't think that Deutsche Bank is going to end up being, you know, the, the pin that pricks the bubble. I don't know that it's Lehman Brothers or, you know, Bear Stearns, although it may fail. But what I do think is that the problems at Deutsche Bank are symptomatic of the entire uh, global banking economy. I mean, there are problems for the banks. And it was always amazing to me that Wall Street is so sanguine about the increase in interest rates when it comes to the banks, you know, because the banks have been living in a 0% interest rate world. I mean, that's how they've existed, right? I mean, they built their businesses on all this cheap money. And they've been able to generate loans because people have been able to borrow because loans were so inexpensive, right? You can, you can loan a lot of money if rates are really low. See, people keep saying, oh, if rates go up, the banks are going to be making more money because they'll have bigger spreads. But they won't be making as many loans because they're not going to have as many customers who can afford to borrow the money because the hurdle is much bigger. Like if you can borrow money at two or three percent and invest it and you can earn five or six percent return, okay. But what if you have to borrow at six percent? Well, now you have to earn maybe eight or nine percent. Well, what if you can't do it? You know, the banks are not going to be able to have the volume of loans when the cost of money is higher. But what happens to the loans they've already made? A lot of those loans could end up in default. And then what? Well, they have collateral. Okay, but what's it worth? The collateral could be worth a lot less in a higher interest rate environment than it was when you extended the loans in a low rate environment. So I think the entire financial sector is a house of cards. I think this thing is going to topple at some point as rates go up. And what's happening in Deutsche Bank, you know, maybe they're just one of the weakest links in a chain. But all the links are going to give. I mean, that's what I said when we had the uh, subprime crisis that first came out in 07, and everybody was saying it was contained. Don't worry about it. You know, my point was it's not contained, and it's not about spreading from subprime. I said the problems in subprime exist in prime. It's just that they haven't come to the surface yet because the credit quality is higher there, right? You're going to see it eventually. It's just that the problem is showing up first, right? In the weakest links, they're the ones that are breaking first. But the whole chain's going to go. I said, it's not about a contagion effect. It's not going to go from subprime to prime. Prime's already sick. We just don't see the symptoms yet because, you know, they have, they're, they're, they're healthier on the, on, the, on the surface. So I think that you're going to see more and more problems in the banking sector. People should be worried about this. This is a, a warning signal what's happening at Deutsche Bank, but it's going to be happening. So that's another sector that's getting beaten up. But getting back to these uh, job numbers, you know, first of all, when they get so excited about the beat, right? We were looking for 190,000 jobs. We got 223. I mean, in, a, in an economy the size of America, I mean, if we created an extra 30,000 jobs during the month, I mean, I mean, that's nothing. I mean, it's almost, you think it's a rounding error. But here's where it even gets more interesting. You know, I've talked about this. We have this birth death model, right? Where it's just a probability. I'm not really sure how, you know, they, they do it. They have a lot of data that obviously they use. They don't just 
you know, just come up with a pure guess, right? There's some kind of methodology here. But the purpose of the birth-death model is to forecast how many jobs were added or subtracted based on businesses that were formed or businesses that closed down, right? Because every month, somebody's going to start a new business, hopefully, right? And that new business is probably going to hire somebody, right? On the other hand, there's going to be a business that shuts down. And then if they shut down, well, they're going to lay off their workers, right? So, and apparently the government doesn't actually know who was hired and who was laid off by these businesses. So they have to come up with some method for, for guessing, for just, you know, using some probability matrix based on other factors that they have to try to figure this out. And they call it the birth death model. And for this last month, out of the 223,000 jobs, 215,000 of them came from the birth death model. I mean, that's 96%. I mean, what if that model is wrong? I mean, why even get excited about a beat by 10 or 20% if 96% of the jobs came from the birth death model? I mean, who knows if that, if that's accurate or not? I mean, you know, I mean, and to me, are they, are there really all these companies starting up? Probably not. I mean, I would think there'd be more people thrown in the towel. And of course, when a business starts up, they probably don't hire that many people at the beginning, right? They're just brand new. I would think that the typical business that's shutting down lays off more people than the typical business that's starting up is hiring, right? Because when you're starting up, you're really small. How many people do you need? Well, let's say you've been in business for 10 years and now you're going out of business. Well, you've had 10 years of hiring people, right? Now you're going to lay them all off, you know, unless maybe you've been steadily laying some off, you know, getting ready to close down. But to me, if you're going to have so much of the jobs just come from this model, where we're just trying to guess them based on some probability and statistical analysis, why get excited over whether it's 190 or 220? I mean, if the jobs numbers were 400,000 or 500,000, Okay, fine. Yeah, whoa, it's really strong. Or if we got a negative number, but anything that's, you know, this close to what they expected, I mean, who cares, right? I mean, that they want to pretend that this is some great news. Meanwhile, you know, the revisions, they revised uh, last month down from 164 to 159,000. But I think the month before that, they revised up. I think the net, you know, of the two revisions was maybe a plus 15. So it was a better number. But look, this is not a strong number. Right. And meanwhile, you know, we don't have labor force participation, as I said, is still 62.7. We increased the number of people not in the workforce, a new all time record high. So if we really had this strong, vibrant economy, why aren't people who left the labor market years ago when the economy was lousy under Obama? Why aren't those guys coming back? Right. Well, why, you know, why don't we have all these people coming into the workforce if this economy is so good? In fact, you know, probably one of the one of the most ironic parts of the day is Nancy Pelosi came out and said and criticized the jobs number, right? Criticized them. But of course, you know, if the same report came out under 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 Obama, she'd be this is fantastic. This is more proof that the president's economic policies are working. He's an incredible leader. We've created another two hundred and twenty three thousand jobs. The unemployment rate is a record low, 3.8, right? That's what Nancy Pelosi would be saying. And as I said at the beginning, Donald Trump would be saying, this is all nonsense. This is all smoke and mirrors. You know, this is the government rigging the numbers, right? That, but now, since the situation is reversed, the same exact numbers, the Republicans embrace it. Donald Trump takes credit for it. And Nancy Pelosi comes out and criticizes it. Oh, it's no good. Now, even though, you know, you could look at these statistics, right? I mean, the, 
black unemployment is at a record low now, right? I mean, imagine if black unemployment was at a record low and Obama was president. It'd be, oh my God, you see? Look at what Obama's doing. Finally, we have a black president, and now somebody is taking care of black unemployment, right? He would really be claiming credit for the fact that black unemployment is now at a record low, and they would say, you see, it takes a black president to understand the problems of the black worker, and now he solved them. But of course, Trump is white, and you have record low black unemployment. They, the left doesn't want to give him credit for that, even though I don't necessarily believe these statistics either. It doesn't make sense to me that the unemployment rate is so low, other than the fact that there are so many people who should be working who are not. And because they're not working and they're not looking for jobs, they're not counted as being unemployed. And I know that we have so many people who are working part-time jobs that should be considered unemployed because they've only got a part-time job, but they're not unemployed. So based on the way we keep score now, you know, we have a low unemployment rate. But clearly, the unemployment rate is lower than it would be if the economy were officially in recession, which it's going to be eventually. You know, when this bubble bursts, when all this wave of false optimism bursts, when interest rates really go up, right, this economy is going to implode. When consumers have to start paying back all this money they borrowed or they can't pay it back and the lenders have to deal with that reality in a wave of defaults and foreclosures, you know, when government is forced to confront uh, the uh, increasing cost of funding its debt, you know, especially in a recession, and, you know, when the Fed has to come clean about the economy and what its monetary policy is going to be, it's not going to be raising rates continuously. It's not going to be shrinking its balance sheet because all that is impossible, right? When the bloom comes off this rose, these jobs are going. I mean, the unemployment rate is going to spike up uh, uh, very rapidly when it turns around. Meanwhile, too, if you look at the jobs, I mean, these are the same type of jobs that Obama was creating. You know, the biggest category was education and healthcare, right? Those are the two most bloated segments of the economy that are heavily subsidized by government, right? So education, all these government schools, and healthcare because of the government subsidies. You know, ironically, too, of course, one of the big reasons that the cost of living is going up and uh, Nancy Pelosi was complaining about the rising cost of living. A lot of that is because of health care costs. You know, whose fault is that, miss? we got to pass it anyway to see what's in it. Obamacare. Uh, but health care costs, all that, we are adding people. We actually should be reducing the number of people that we have in health care and education. We have too much of our resources in those sectors of the economy. Because those sectors aren't actually producing things. We have to support those sectors with productive activity, right? And if we're not really a productive economy, we can't afford all the health care. We can't afford all the education. But of course, we probably have a lot more people working in those sectors than we really need, but it's all these government subsidies that are sucking resources out of other parts of the economy and, you know, depositing them into health care and education. So that was the biggest. And then you have, you know, the third biggest was retail trade, right? I mean, that's just people working at stores, Right, people spending borrowed money to buy buy stuff that we we didn't make, uh, but that's all. Those are pretty low paying jobs. Then right up there near the top, leisure and hospitality. Right, these are people that work in hotels, they work in restaurants. I mean, again, these are not high paying jobs. I mean, manufacturing is low on the totem pole. Very few jobs there are mining or uh, you know there are some construction jobs, but I mean those jobs are going to go away. I mean as as interest rates continue to go up, I mean construction is going to come to a screeching halt, 
and then so are those jobs. But this is the same type of low-paying jobs, uh, minimum wage type jobs, part-time jobs. That's what we're creating. This is not some new era of prosperity. This is a repeat of the phony prosperity that led to the 2008 financial crisis. And guys like Larry Kudlow just can't recognize it. It is impossible for them to do that. And they are sowing the seeds of their own destruction. They are basically playing right into the Democrats' trap, whether they know they've got it or not. You know, they're probably hoping for a collapse. They have no idea that they're right. Uh, but when they get it, they've got a perfect script. And I think the electorate is going to fall for it, hook, line, and sinker. Meanwhile, the markets are also ignoring all of the problems on the trade horizon with Donald Trump now coming in with these tariffs that are going to get imposed on steel, on aluminum, the 25, 50% tariffs are going ahead with those. Um, again, you know, this is going to be a problem for the U.S. consumer as if he's already dealing with an increase in the cost of living. These tariffs are going to increase prices and to the extent that consumers actually buy the imports, Yes, it's going to increase taxes because those higher prices are going to be in the form of taxes. But if instead of buying an import, they buy something that's produced more expensive, you know, that's produced domestically, but they only are buying it because now it's competitive because of the tariff. The government's not getting that money, the U.S. businesses, but the consumer still ends up paying a higher price than he otherwise would have paid for the merchandise. So where is he going to get that money? What is he not going to buy because now he has to pay more for something that contains steel or aluminum? Or is he going to go out and borrow money to afford it? But if he's going to borrow it, then who else is he going to borrow? There's not an unlimited amount of credit out there. So if somebody borrows it, somebody else can't use it, right? So there is no free lunch. All they do is, is rearrange things. They try to take credit for what you can see, but they never accept responsibility for all the damage that you don't see. I mean, they'll try to blame that on somebody else. You know, by the way, I read a story. I don't know that it's true or not. I mean, I read it in another number of uh, different reputable publications about Donald Trump wanting to put tariffs on German luxury cars to basically prevent them. You know, like, so they, you wouldn't even have any Mercedes or maybe BMWs uh, being sold in the United States. Now, we haven't actually seen that, but it did provoke a reaction. I think some of the German, uh, car manufacturers sold off on the story that he was talking like that, like he was actually going to come out there and, and and try to ban these cars from coming into coming into the country, as if somehow that is going to improve a life in America. Like people are all of a sudden, they say, oh, well, you know, I'll just, I'll just buy a Ford. And I think uh, Trump had even commented that, oh, you know, we've got all these... Um, uh, Mercedes is here in New York, but we don't have a lot of Chevys in Germany. I mean, why, why should the Germans buy a Chevy? I mean, why, I mean, I mean, you know, I mean, I can see America's okay, but I mean, if you're in Germany and we, they got so many cars, let's buy a Volkswagen if you want an expensive car. I mean, look how many good cars are made over there in Germany. You know, why are they going to go import, uh, a, a U.S. car, uh, when they, they make their own cars that are as good or better and they're already there? They don't have to cover the, uh, the, the cost of the transportation. I mean, one of the reasons that so many foreign cars are sold here is because Americans prefer them. Uh, but if Americans prefer German cars, then why shouldn't Germans prefer German cars? And they do. And it's, you know, it's not just true. You go to any country in the world, you travel around, and you don't see a lot of American cars on the road. And it's not because of tariffs. I mean, if consumers wanted those cars, they'd be there. Right? They're just We just don't have big market share. We have a big market share here, 
but that's because we started with pretty much 100% of the market share and, you know, we've been losing it, you know, over time. Because at one point, all the cars were made here. And, all the, and in fact, American cars were, you know, were desired all around the world, you know. But we lost our competitive edge mainly after the Second War, probably really in the 1970s, 1980s, because we were layering on big government. Uh, we had the labor unions and we couldn't compete with Germany and Japan, even though we, 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 we beat the crap out of them in the war. When the war was over, they had more economic freedom than we did. What, what did we get as a result of World War II? We got the income tax. Right? We got the withholding tax. We ended up with bigger government. Japan and Germany ended up with smaller government. We got rid of Hitler, right? We, you know, we got rid of the emperor, right? We liberated Germany and, and Japan. So at, in the 50s and the 60s, Germany and Japan had less government than they had in the 30s and the 40s. America had more government. And so they were able to outcompete us. They didn't have all these problems. They had more free markets, right? They had lower taxes. They had fewer regulations. And so they were making better cars. You know, and they took our markets. They took our global markets and they ate in dramatically to our domestic markets. And if Donald Trump is really upset about the trade balance, you know, and he wants to do something about it, you've got to go back to looking at the real cause of what made America lose its competitive edge. Because it's not just labor costs. We had high labor costs in the 1920s, 1930s, 1940s, relative to the rest of the world, when we made the, the best cars. We didn't have, we would, we didn't have a trade deficit. Nobody was buying these German cars back then or Japanese cars. Everybody was buying American cars, right? So what we need to do is recreate the free market, you know, economy that existed, not erecting tariffs. That's not going to do it. Just trying to put band-aids on a cancer. That's not going to stop it from spreading. You got to take out that cancer. The cancer is the government. The cancer is the regulation, the taxes, right? Get rid of all that stuff. But of course, we can't get rid of the taxes unless we dismantle the government. See, back back before the Second World War, even, you know, even with the early part of the New Deal, government was tiny. You know, I, I think at the turn of the 19th century, right, 1900, government at all levels, federal, state, local, it was something like 4% of GDP. It was like a tenth of the size that it is now. Government was tiny. So can you imagine how much you can accomplish when you have a tiny government? Right, when government is an afterthought, when there's no income tax, when there's no social security tax, right, no payroll taxes. You know, imagine if you could run a business and not even have to keep books and records because you didn't have to keep books and records, right? If you ran a small business in 1900, 19, you, it just, whatever came in, came in, whatever went out. If you had employees, you paid them. You didn't have to keep track of what you paid them. You didn't have to withhold anything. You didn't have an accountant. I mean, but as long as you had more money coming in than going out, you knew you were doing well. That was it, right? Imagine life. Imagine being in a country like that where you didn't need a permit for everything you wanted to do. The government didn't have to give you permission, right? I mean, that was freedom. You could do what you wanted, right? As long as you didn't hurt somebody else, you were free to conduct your affairs the way you wanted to. You could hire people. You could fire people, right? Didn't matter why. You didn't like, you didn't like what they were doing. You fire them. But if you were a worker, you could work wherever you wanted. And you could get jobs. There were jobs all over the place that you could get. It was easy to get jobs. You know, there wasn't any government interference in the, the, you know, the negotiation process. There weren't any requirements of, you know, you didn't have to, you know, jump over certain hurdles. You didn't have to prove that you were worth some minimum wage or, you know, whatever. If you, if you, there was a job that you liked and you liked to pay, you took it, right? Uh, it was, it was, it was a simple, 
And people came here from around the world. I mean, people say, oh, you know, you need all these workers' protections. All four of my grandparents came to America from Europe knowing that they had no protection whatsoever. There were no labor laws. There was no welfare. There were no caseworkers meeting my grandparents, telling them how to apply for food stamps because it didn't exist. No food stamps, no welfare. There was nothing. There was no government help at all. Yet they were coming by the millions. Why? Because they wanted freedom. They wanted opportunity. That's what you get. That's the trade-off. The less government, the more opportunity, the more freedom. As you start building up government, you have to diminish freedom. And it's freedom that leads to prosperity. Right? Cudlow wants to talk about this new era of prosperity. We were prosperous when we were free. We're not free anymore. We're slaves of the government. We're paying confiscatory levels of taxation. The reality is, as high as taxes are in America, they're not high enough. Because we still have a massive deficit. We need higher taxes if we want all this government. We're going to pay for it, right? We're going to pay for it with inflation, with a depreciation of the dollar, with higher interest rates. We're going to pay for it with a financial crisis that's coming or sovereign debt and currency crisis. But we don't have anything like the prosperity that we've had in the past, right? This is, this is just like the bubbles that we've had, you know, in, in the recent past, not the prosperity that we've had in the distant past. When Cudlow was talking about a new era, I mean, it sounds like he's thinking this is like, you know, something that we haven't experienced before. This is like we're, we're on, the, uh, on the doorstep of this new chapter in the, the American experience, this great prosperity. Based on what? Based on all the money that we borrowed since Trump was elected president? That's what's going to do it? That's what's going to usher in this new uh, era of prosperity? No. This is the same old problem. We're doing exactly what Trump criticized Obama from doing. The country is every much an economic wasteland now, as it was a couple of years ago when he was running those commercials. It's just that we've managed to con the world into loaning us even more money. We've got an even bigger problem, and it's all going to come to a head. And again, it's going to come to a head with Trump in the White House, with Republicans in control, uh, the Republican agenda. Republicans are going to take the blame in an even bigger way uh, than Bush did, in an even bigger way than they did in 2008. Because this is going to let the Democrats say, see, you got burned a second time. Bush drove the car into the ditch. Obama got it out. And then as soon as Trump got the keys, he put the car into an even bigger ditch. Now it's going to be even harder to get it out. So we need even more government this time than we had last time. That's why we need a socialist government. We have proved once and for all that capitalism does not work. And socialism is the answer. It is the solution. And that is the message that the American electorate is going to buy. So in the meantime, you got to turn out all this noise. You got to, you know, all these talking heads talking about how great it is. Buy the stock market. Everything is great. You got to realize that this is what they always say before every collapse. Right? It's the same people making the same mistake. Only now the stakes are higher because there's no bailout next time. So you got to get this right. You got to bail yourself out before the crisis, because there's no one that's bailing anybody out after the crisis. The people that are blindsided this time, they don't have a reprieve. They're going to be down for the count. And so what we got to do is continue to build up our portfolios of uh, you know getting out of the dollar, getting into gold, getting into gold stocks, getting into good dividend-paying foreign stocks, buying into the markets that everybody is ignoring, buying into the companies that everybody is using as a source of funds, because they want to go all in on the momentum, on the hype, 
And when they do that, right, the real safe haven assets that they should be buying are cheap. And those are the ones that we're buying now. And it doesn't matter if they go lower. It's all a bunch of noise right now. Because once the reality rears its ugly head, uh, the people who have been piling in like lemmings into these overpriced stocks, uh, they're going to collapse. And then what they don't lose in the market, they're going to lose in purchasing power. Because as much as the stock market is going to go down, the dollar is going to go down more. So the real losses are going to dwarf the nominal losses. And that's why you've got to keep your eye on the big picture, tune out the noise, right? And invest to win the game, right? Not to, not to have a lead and blow it, but to be the guy standing with the trophy at the end. Mm -hmm.